Hello, everyone. You are listening to the 86th episode of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? I am <laughs> great. It was a very good weekend. I can hear it in your voice. You must have done a lot of loud talking. Loud talking and singing and everything. As we discussed last week, this weekend... uh. So Friday, Saturday, and today was the Duluth October Festival that wow. my band Vinzigahosen played on Friday and Saturday night. Vinzigahosen, and it was a beautiful time filled with beautiful people. It was rainy, yeah. So it rained real hard this weekend. So and it's an outdoor event, but luckily we have a big tent. But as yeah. a result, there was some mud mm. everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The first night pretty slow, just because of the rain. And because it's a Friday night, Friday Friday. night's always slower than Saturday. Yep. And then Saturday was a big old party, and I got to wear my new yellow lederhosen that my mama got for me, and it was was mint, and our show went really well. We ran exactly on time. Yes. Beautiful. And then uh, I just have one quick story from the weekend. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so... We do a cover of Sexual Healing, but Uh we don't cover the Marvin Gaye version. Marvin Gaye, right? I believe so. Yeah. We cover the Hot 8 Brass Band cover of Marvin Gaye's Sexual Sexual Healing. Healing. Okay. Meaning it's very like, it's it's a tuba and trumpet song. Oh, that's, I mean, that's your jam. Yeah. That's you. Yep, and so, because the, they're this brass band from New Orleans, Hot 8, uh, Hot 8 Brass Band is, and, and I love them. They're great. Fuck yeah, brass band from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And as a joke, our bassist does this thing where he rips his shirt off because he's not playing because it's all, like, they're, the guitars play a little bit, the drummer is super key, but him as the bassist, I'm handling all the bass. Right. So he's got nothing to do anyway. He's like, I'm going to rip off a shirt. And then he has these little X's on his nipples with electrical tape. And it's hilarious. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before the song actually started, Brian just made a joke. He's like, oh, man, this is a sexy song. Sounds like somebody might have to get shirtless later as a lead in to Eric ripping off his shirt. Right. Well, as after he said that, we started the song. Tommy's going. I'm going, which means it's a constant. I'm playing through the entire song. Right. Patrick's going. Yep. And then the guys are in front clapping and singing, so they're facing forward. Right. Everybody's facing forward. It's very, like, you have to pay attention to it because if one thing goes wrong, the whole song will go off the rails. Right. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody walk up on the side of the stage, which isn't abnormal. There's been photographers kind of going from that angle the whole time. Right. But then I'm like looking out of the corner of my eyes as I'm playing and I see them take their shirt off. No. Whoa. And it's just like, I'm like, what is, what is happening? And then the guy is obviously had too many beers Mm -hmm. and he starts trying to walk up the stairs. So as I'm playing, I'm backing up. And blocking the stairs, and I'm, like, playing and trying to shake my head as much as I can. Like, no, don't come up here. Yeah, and then he keeps, like, shrugging and just keep, like, and he's, like, doing this, like, 
shuffle thing. Yeah, let's do like, it. Like shuffle thing <laughs> oh, where no. he thinks he's like trying to find a way around me. And at one point I kicked my leg out. I didn't kick him. Right. But I kicked my leg out to make sure it was very clear that no, dude. Go away. You're not welcome up here. Right. And I'm like, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do because I know if I'm going to screw up soon if this doesn't right. get fixed. And I look out into the crowd and there is my sister and my mom yeah, and my aunt and uh, some friends, including Leon. Leon, I saw your post about Leon. Yeah. And so I'm looking just for anybody to catch my eye because like Ray was there. A bunch of people we know were there yeah. that all could have handled it. My sister was getting ready to go handle it. Right. And then Leon like looks at me and he goes, like, like, met, like, he's like, like do you, you want need, me to do, do this? Do you need help? And you, you went, uh-huh. And I went, uh-huh. And then he came around and like led the guy out. And it was very, the guy was just so drunk. He really, I don't think he had any idea what was going on. Yeah. So Leon was very nice, led him away. Ray was like, oh, if I had seen that happen and I would have done it too. Like it, was, it right. was, everybody was very nice. It wasn't like anybody got their ass kicked or anything. That's good. But my fun story is that while playing sexual healing, I had to block a like shirtless man with my foot and have <laughs> one of my friends escort him away from the stage. But you kept on time. But I kept playing, and that's my biggest accomplishment of this Fuck last weekend. Yeah. Yeah, girl. <laughs> and my bandmates are great, and the whole show was awesome, so... That's awesome. I wish I would have been able to go. That was my week. You were very busy. We were both very busy. I know. I know. So how are you doing? I'm pretty good. This was a busy weekend. We, I have a golf tournament to put together for tomorrow. That sounds boring. It Well, it's okay. So it's mostly put together, uh, but I have to go and actually like execute it. And for some reason... And I, I probably talked about this last year. In 2020, when we decided to do this golf thing for my work because it was an outdoor event and people didn't have to be cramped inside, so it was, like, more COVID safe than any of our other events. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, I got put in charge of doing everything, but I don't know anything about golf. And to this day, I've learned more of the terminology, and it's been three years. <laughs> uh, but I'm mostly excited because my job will be to zoom around in a golf cart and take photos of the teams. And now that Melissa is my coworker, mm-hmm. she's going to be right there with me. Because well, it's be usually a fun day. me all by myself. Yeah. When I say boring, by the way, I just mean... I am not a golf fan. For no. people who love golf, I'm sure this is great. Yeah, they seem to get really excited about it. I, however, could not care less. But now you get to drive around in a golf cart with Melissa and take pictures. Yeah. Also, I had a very interesting experience on Friday. I had my first energy healing session. Oh, cool. It was very cool. The The woman that I went to was super fantastic. I'm super sorry. I don't remember her name, but she's up on like 8th Street. And it was a very, very positive experience. That's rad. Yeah, I had been watching all these Reiki videos on TikTok and it got me into the concept of it. And then I Googled Reiki plus Duluth, Minnesota. And she doesn't actually do Reiki in the traditional sense. She said that she's like uh, upgraded to do like more broad, more intensive energy healing. Mm -hmm. But honestly... It was pretty, it was a pretty delightful experience. Awesome. I feel like next time I'm feeling a little unbalanced, I'm just going to make an appointment and have her straighten me out. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Way more effective than my method of when I feel unbalanced, I'm like, huh, 
I'm going to watch uh, Grey's Anatomy again. Because <laughs> you know what's calming? A woman with her hand in a chest with a bomb in the body cavity. Super calming. Super. You know, I watched that episode. I didn't watch a lot of Grey's, <laughs> but I did watch that episode. I mean, I fall asleep to murder shows, so it's not... It makes sense why I'm so <laughs> full of anxiety, or actually, I find that very calming. I don't know. I don't know, but it what was does very that say? helpful. What does that say? We don't know, but don't it's know. just the way these, it is. This is. These are the facts. I fall asleep to murder shows, and I'm full of anxiety. <laughs> Welcome to me as a human. <laughs> well, we have a sponsored episode this week. Yeah, we do. So before we get into it, should we crack into it? Crack on into it. This Friday at the Earthrider Brewery Festival Grounds is the performance and music video release for Emily Havoc's new single, Do You Think You Protect Me? And if you are thinking that Emily's name sounds familiar, it's because we say it every week at the end of the podcast. She, along with Dave Melling, produced the Left of Skeptic music. This new song from her band, Emily Havoc and the 35s, is about demanding safety for women and accountability from men. Emily Havoc and the 35s will be joined by Afro Geode and the Gemstones in the first of two music video releases, the second happening at the Cedar Cultural Center in Minneapolis, along with Jillian Ray. This event will include a silent auction, and all of the proceeds will go to the Native Lives Matter Coalition, No More Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Great Lakes Campaign. So join us on Friday, September 23rd at 6 p.m. at the Earthrider Brewery Festival Grounds for this amazing performance and music video release. For more information about this event, go to earthrider.beer. Brittany. Yes, Kayla. I've got a haunted transportation story for you this week. You love haunted transportation things. Indeed. Have you ever heard of the Charfield Railway disaster? I don't think so. Okay. So on October 13th of 1928, a fatal train crash occurred in the village of Charfield in the English county of Gloucestershire. And when you read the accident report from the railway archive, it gets super detailed. Okay. So here's a brief summary directly from railway archive. Okay. The leads to Bristol, London, Midland, and Scottish Railway night mail train failed to stop at the signal protecting the down refuge siding at Chatfield Railway Station. The weather was misty, but there was not a sufficiently thick enough fog for the signalman to employ the fog signal. Okay. 
A freight train was in the process of being shunted down the main line to the siding, and another train of empty goods and wagons was passing through the station from the other direction. The mail train collided with the freight train and was derailed. Coming into the collision with the up train underneath the road bridge and the north part of the station, gas that was used to light the carriages ignited and four carriages were burnt out. Well, that's not great. The driver of the mail train claimed that he had seen a clear distance signal on approach to the station and therefore had assumed that the home signals protecting the station were also clear. However, testing the signals after the accident confirmed that the distance had been correctly in the yellow caution position. The ah. final result was 16 fatalities and 41 injured. And the driver was also charged with manslaughter, but was subsequently acquitted. So. I really wish that I had like an overview map to visualize that a little bit better. So even with a brief summary, I had this literally noted. That's a bit difficult to understand, yeah, especially what? if you're just listening to it. And the jargon. When I read it, I had to go back and read it a few times to understand but luckily, I found an article from the Bristol Post that put it in more layman's terms. Love layman's terms. Okay. For reasons never properly understood, the train hurtled past a red signal at Chatfield, Charfield. Charfield, okay. And the 60 passengers on board found themselves second away, seconds away from catastrophe. Their train suddenly slammed into a goods train still on the line and then veered off the rails into a third empty train no so this collision ignited gas cylinders that were hung between the front carriages of the main train yeah a raging inferno soon consumed the wreckage of all three trains oh my god claiming the lives of 16 people despite frantic efforts to save them alan hamilton an author and editor who has been intrigued by the Cherfield disaster for decades, said there were scenes of chaos as residents and emergency services rushed to the scene. When the impact happened at the connections at the gas tanks ruptured, what you effectively got was a bomb. Yeah. All it took was the sparks from the collision, maybe fires from the engines, and the whole thing went up. Oh, my God. The passengers at the front of the train were burnt beyond recognition. One was thrown out of the coach, over the bridge, and into the road. He died in the hospital. You can imagine when the rescuers began to search the wreckage that they found only charred remnants. I'm surprised it was only 16 people who died, though. But 41 injuries, too, on top of it. Yeah, but she... And they don't say how severe some of those injuries were. That's true. According to the Bristol Times writer Eugene Byrne, the nearby railway tavern pub was quickly transformed into a makeshift hospital and morgue in the afternoon after the crash. Some people describe the flames as high as 30 or 40 feet because of those gas cylinders. Oh, my God. The pub was used as a hospital. They had large tables and lots of space and brandy for medical use. In the following days, news articles were filled with tragic and horrifying stories. A story in the Times from November 5th, 1928 tells of a Bradford engineer, a passenger on the train, who heard his fiance next to him scream before being thrown out of the carriage himself due to the force of the collision. Oh, my God. An article in the Bath and Wills Chronicle and Herald from the day reads, the scene was one of horror and mingling with the cries and moans of the injured was the hissing of steam and the crackling of flames. Another article gave a firsthand account of one of the victim's experiences where they said, Lewis Huntley was returning to Penzance with his wife and widowed sister. He was in the second coach and he said, I fell into a mass of struggling people. 
I told my wife to jump and she did, but my sister was trapped from the waist down as if she was held in a vice. Oh my God. I heard the cries of trapped women in the next compartment and was able to free them. My sister was crying, please free me. And I stuck to it until the flames were only two or three feet away and I had to leave her to die. Oh my God. I was knocked out by a blow on the jaw and came to to hear screams, said Mr. Holmanbrook, who was uh, accompanying his intended fiance, Hilda. And he said, I found myself laying on top of the wreckage, crying for Hilda, but there was no answer. I crawled on my hands and knees along the top of the wreckage until some men brought me down by a ladder. Within 20 minutes, flames were leaping 40 feet above the cutting, and it took five hours before fire engines from Gloucestershire, Bristol, and Stroud managed to get the flames under control. Awful. That's awful. So, that certainly paints a much more brutal and emotional picture than the very straightforward report from Railway Archives. It was kind of misty, but not misty enough to put on the really bright lights. Mm-hmm. So, a tragedy, yes, but... Some mysteries involved from this. Okay. Specifically, rumors concerning the identity of two young victims. And then a mysterious woman in black and numerous conspiracy theories have all developed over the years. As a result, the crashes lingered in the residents' memories for generations, much longer than any normal like, big transportation tragedy would. Right. Every transportation tragedies happen. Yep. Car crashes, we know about them. Some people, unfortunately, have had to see them. Some people have been involved in them. Right. But usually, if it's big enough, people will talk about it for a while, and then it kind of dies out. This has always been around. The biggest mystery to emerge from this incident is the two unknowns. Of the many bodies found in the wreckage, there were two adolescents found, burned beyond recognition. Sadly, that was not abnormal for this crash, as I mentioned. Right. But even sadder... It appeared that these two bodies had no one to claim them. Oh. One appeared to be around four or five, and the other seemed to be in between like 15 to 17, according to some of the sources. It was the 20s, so I don't know what forms of identification they had, but despite nationwide publicity, no one ever came forward. Charfield residents were forced to bury the children in a common grave at one of the village's churches, which literally lists them as two unknowns. So for the bodies of the people that either couldn't afford to have a burial mm-hmm. or were unclaimed, they have just this one like common grave with a like cross headstone that lists everybody that's buried there as much as they can. Wow. Wow. And they're all from the accident, I guess. Okay. So who were these kids? Why were they on the train alone? Why does nobody know who they are? The mystery begins to deepen when a woman dressed in black began regularly visiting the grave every year on the anniversary of the crash from 1930s through the 1950s. Like a real woman. Like a real woman. Okay. Her face was veiled. She would lay flowers on the grave, but she would never speak to anyone. Wait, when? from what years? The 30s through the 50s. Okay. A resident named Joe Kloiber saw the woman and he told a paper about it in the 70s when they were covering this accident because it continued to stay in people's minds. Right. He said, the poor lady is at rest now, I suppose. All I can tell you is that she was frail, always dressed in black, and came to the grave two or three times a year. 
She always arrived in a chauffeur-driven limousine. The car was not black, but I cannot remember the color. She would put flowers on the grave and pray there. The identity of the two children and this mysterious woman in black is still the subject of much speculation among Charfield residents, but according to the article in the Bristol Post, many of whom claim to have seen her or know somebody else who had. Marshall Huxley, who is a landlord of the Railway Tavern Pub, said, People have told me there was a widow in black who used to visit the grave in a Rolls Royce. Julie Tarot, a cook at the pub, said her mother used to see the mysterious woman in black visit the grave every year, but she never saw the face because she had a veil on. And they used to think it was someone from royalty because the license plate was covered up. So this where it goes from mystery to conspiracy. Yeah. Alan Hamilton, the author I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. has also considered the theory that the Charfield disaster may have had a royal link, but he's not fully bought in on that one. He said, the theories range from the idea that those kids were related to royalty or illegitimate royalty, all the way to the idea that they were just two rough sleeping kids that weren't even on the train. They just happened to be buried in the salvage because they were near that area. Okay. Like they were homeless youths. Okay. Eugene Byrne, who I also mentioned earlier, said the two unknowns and reported sightings of the woman black has inspired many other legends, some more outlandish than others. I love the outlandish ones. (laughs) He said the two children are one of the enduring mysteries of the accident. The woman visited on the anniversary of the crash, laid flowers, prayed at the grave. But after the 1950s, she stopped visiting. The implication is that she was the mother of these two children. Right. But we don't know that. Right. Another source said that she visited every year until the early 1960s. When a member of the media tried to approach her on the anniversary, she ran off and hasn't been back since. He ruined it. So the implication there being that everybody just kind of left her alone, left her to do her thing. But when this media person approached because they knew to expect her, she was like, oh, I guess I can't come here anymore. I'm no longer anonymous. Right. But... I kind of feel that was one source that said that, and I kind of feel like that might be an example of stories growing with false details so that they could try to maintain relevance or interest. Right. And, I mean, at some point in time, she herself had to pass away. It had Mm -hmm. been 30 30 years? 20 years. Yep. So. A big drive of a lot of these theories is this idea that she's wealthy somehow and maybe royalty because she shows up in a fancy car. I mean, that's legit. Yep. The most out- fancy ladies wear veils. Obviously, only fancy ladies wear veils. The most outlandish theory was that they were actually two ventriloquist dummies. Okay, I don't like that one. Another statement back. suggestion is that they were two particularly small jockeys. Like horse jockeys? Yeah. Yeah, I know what a jockey is. Um, I'm sorry, did did you did we get the the sex of the two children? Uh no, it doesn't list it. Okay. Just the guest ages. Okay. And then another theory uh from a local carpenter said that the two small coffins were not actually children. But the two unknowns were human remains that could not be fixed into any recognizable person. Okay. So they like the idea being that they did two unknowns because it was like the 
coffins that they had to fill with parts that they couldn't piece together fully. Also, if everyone is kind of buried in the same grave, what what makes everyone just assume that it has to do with the kids and not just someone else who was on the train? I don't know. Okay. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, we, we don't know anything, yep. so I didn't expect you to actually have an answer for me. <laughs> um, That's it. I figured it out right here. <laughs> this, this is the answer that we've been waiting for since the 20s. Many of the conspiracy theories focus on train driver Henry Aldington, and there is a way that it ties in with this woman, potentially. Okay. He was blamed for the crash with a jury unanimously finding him negligent by passing the signals when at danger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he was committed for that trial at Gloucestershire Aziz on a charge of manslaughter, but the case did not proceed and he was discharged. Mm. So the fact that the train driver walked free further fueled rumors of foul play and speculation among residents that the disaster was a cover-up and potentially a cover-up with the royal family, hence the woman in black maybe being a part of the royal family, and then that's how that all goes through. Bro, what? Government cover-ups, man. They, they go deep. And then the other mystery is how did the train go through the signal at danger? I don't understand much about how trains work, but if the signal was actually properly at danger, they shouldn't have been able to just go through. It was stated that there was a fog, but they didn't put out the fog warnings. And Alan Hamilton's theory is that they saw what they wanted to see and they were hurrying because in those days, drivers were often penalized for being late and it resulted in a terrible, like, deadly mistake. Yeah. Which, honestly, that doesn't sound conspiracy theory-y at all. That sounds very realistic and plausible and that's almost the saddest one. Yep. Because that kind of stuff does, in fact, happen. People have to be careless because they have to get things done by a certain time. Otherwise, they get in trouble. And that carelessness leads to someone getting hurt. And if the mystery and the conspiracy weren't enough for you, there's a little bit of ghosty, too. All right. Because local legend says that in the area surrounding the crash site, people have reported strange sightings of ghostly children. They see small figures stand together, hand in hand, silently looking down the tracks. Locals say that these are the children patiently waiting for the day someone identifies them so they can finally rest in peace. If the mystery, like, the conspiracy, whatever the truth is here, Hmm. this is obviously a very big tragedy, and from what I can read, people are still, from way back in history to now, still writing articles about this. Right. Like, I think one was from the mid-teens, and that's not that long ago. And so they'll probably continue to talk about this for decades to come unless somebody actually comes up with an answer for some of these freaking mysteries. I love all of the conspiracy theories, and I would not be surprised if there were ghosts at that location because oofda. Mm-hmm. But... uh. The implication from that statement was that they were little kids and that there were multiple of them. Well, there's two. Okay. And according to what that one said is they thought one might have been four to five. Right. And one might have been like 15 to 17. Yeah, that's not little. Yeah, but they say small figures. Like, okay. I call Jada small. She's taller than me. But <laughs> she's 
younger, so I call her small. Like, I don't know that we have to read too much into that. Okay. Okay. I'm just very literal. (laughs) I'm a very literal person. Because this is a bunch of mystery stuff and conspiracy theories, what I was thinking is, in a change up, instead of rating this on our skeptic scale. Okay. I want to know which conspiracy theory you think is true. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay, okay. I love this one. Okay, I think that there were two children, and I do believe that they were part of the royal family. I am guessing that the 15 or 16-year-old was actually a girl, and that the little kid was her child, and it was kept secret from the nation because of the royalty scandal of it all, because she would have been, like, what, like 10 or 11 when she gave birth, but they were finally traveling and they were going to be reunited with their family because a different excuse could be made. And then all of a sudden this happened and then the royals were like, oh no, my child. And then she's really sad. And so she goes and visits them. All right. I'm going with the ventriloquist dummies. Lies. You're just (laughs) doing that because it's the most opposite of mine. (laughs) Kayla. No, actually, I do think that I would lean towards the idea of the um, body parts that they couldn't form into full humans. I mean, that's not nearly as fun. No, I like your theory. It's the most entertaining. Yes. But I'm, I am I went with realistic. Well, that was fun. We yeah. Oh, dude, anytime you want to do a conspiracy theory one, even if there are no ghosts, like, I'm all about it. <laughs> well, I was All trying to keep it, it because we're paranormal. Yeah. We've we've included stories without ghosts many times. I love to cover UFOs. That's paranormal. That's paranormal. So this yeah. is paranormal. I would argue. Just based on the fact that there were two potential ghosties in there. That was enough for me to throw it in. I yep, that's <laughs> right there. You know, but I also just love love a good uh, uh like a whodunit. Gotta love a whodunit. Yeah. Are you ready to tell me a story? I do, in fact, have a story for you. Oh, yes. Let's get another ad break, though, eh? Eh? Yeah. It is Kayla's favorite time of the year. Earthrider has released their Fest Beer, the life of the party, Earthrider's Munich-style Fest Beer, is a golden lager with bready malt character and a subdued floral hop aroma. And like all Earthrider beers, it is made with the amazing Lake Superior water and fresh ingredients. And to add to Kayla's excitement, Earthrider has announced their own Oktoberfest, which is happening on October 8th at the Earthrider Festival Grounds. For more information about this event... The music, the games, the food, and the fun. Check out their website at earthrider.beer. And we're back. Yeah. Well, it's been a long time since we've done an ad break. I know. It's, it's It almost makes the flow a little different. <laughs> it's very much so. I feel like it took us a minute to adjust to it when we weren't doing the ad breaks. Yeah. And now we got used to that, and so we had to get back into it again. And also the first time in person. Yes. All right. Well, uh, this story goes out to my sister, Drea. Sister. Technically, her name is Andrea. I call her Drea. It seems more badass. Yeah, I'm in. Because, now I don't have any uh, stuff 
like ironed out, but she messaged me yesterday and she said, hey, this spring, do you want to go to Savannah? And I was like, yeah, duh. (laughs) And, And she's like, okay, I'll have to check mom's schedule so that she can take care of the child and the dog. And then she sent another message that said, or, or should we just leave my husband at home and take mom with us? And I went, obviously, we're taking mom with us. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight I'm heading to Savannah, Georgia to tell you about the 1790 restaurant and inn. Okay. 1790, good year for ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not from 1790. That's just the title. Oh, that's just the title. But I thought maybe it was like, it was built in this year, so these are the things, but no, okay. No, it's not. (laughs) All righty, well, it was worth a shot. I I go into it a little bit later. (laughs) (laughs) So it's located at 307 East President Street, uh, and this hotel is one of the oldest in Savannah, which I kind of feel like everything says that, but whatever. Savannah's just old. It's old. Originally three separate residences, the west and main part of the building was originally built as a boarding house between 1821 and 1823 by a man named Steely White, though sadly he died from falling off a horse just shortly before the construction was finished. At some point, the boarding house was converted into a hotel and then the smaller eastern section of the existing building, which was built in 1888 by the Powers family, was annexed and became part of a whole mega inn. (laughs) Just kidding. There are only like 14 rooms in this inn. (laughs) Mega inn. It's a Hilton. (laughs) The name 1790, which is written out as the number 17, the word 100, and then the number 90, likely refers to the year, obviously the year 1790, uh, when the first free election of mayor, city council, and formulation of the Savannah city government occurred following the American Revolution. I was, I was going to make a Hamilton thing, but I, I, my voice is too tired. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, no, I was, re- I was like, I can't even try right now. No, absolutely not. Sorry, I know y'all love my Hamilton references, but, uh, you know. Or at least Sarah does. Don't, don't worry. Someday. Uh, you know it's going to come up again. It's come up countless times. You'll be back. There, that's my reference. The main inn, which is a federal-style building, offers an upscale restaurant and tavern on the main floor with seven rooms on each of the two upper floors. The dining room and tavern have the rustic vibe and wooden decor of an 1820s tavern, including the slate floor and soft brick walls from the previous structure from the same location, which had been destroyed in the Great Savannah Fire of 1820. Savannah. Savannah. What? Why? Is that just how they say that, or is that from something? Because that's how I say it every time. Uh, did you watch The Office? N- not enough. Okay, There's an, the reason I do that is because there's a episode of The Office where they play one of those murder mystery games, like board games, oh. and they use a southern accent like that. And Savannah. the character Andy goes, no, you're doing more of a Savannah accent, which is just like molasses dripping out of your mouth. <laughs> okay. So that's why I say it that way. I don't think that's why I say it. It <laughs> must be from something else. Um, the guest rooms on the upper floors are adorned with Victorian furnishings and the original fireplaces, which have been converted to either gas or electric, safety reasons, as well as have their own private bathrooms. 
I actually looked up the prices in this place because I'm like, oh, we're going to Savannah. Let's look at this place, which is, spoiler alert, haunted. It's pretty expensive. (laughs) But it only has 14 rooms, so what can you do? And actually, in addition to the 14 rooms, the inn has also expanded to include three guest houses with three, five, and four additional rooms. But I don't really know anything about those houses. They didn't even tell me where they were. Oh, okay. They're just near it. So I'm not sure if they're haunted. And it's also a popular stop on the Savannah Ghost Tours, even playing into it with a mannequin dressed in early 1800s clothing looking out a window, just hidden enough behind the curtain to make folks wonder if it could possibly be a ghost. A.K.A. We're going to make you think this place is haunted before you even step inside. Also, side note, apparently it's written in a bunch of the guest books that sometimes the guests, when they see people approaching the building, will slightly move the mannequin. (laughs) And then people freak out and think, oh my God, there's a ghost there and it's moving. Interactive haunting. The guests are in on it too. Apparently it's been jolly good fun. And what ghost do people think that the mannequin represents? Well, that would be Anna. Now, there's a lot of misinformation swirling around about Anna, and a lot of it stems from the fact that Steely White was married to a woman named Anne, and the Powers family, who originally owned the smaller eastern section of the house, also had an Anne or an Anna in it. Uh, But the prevalent story doesn't make any sense for either family, but when you're looking through the sources, sometimes Steely White gets like brought in and they act like it's his wife, Anna, but it's not. not. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't make any sense for her. Yeah. When he died before the building was even completed. So the general consensus is that once upon a time, there was a young woman named Anna who lived in the boarding house. And she fell madly in love with a sailor and became pregnant by him. Instead of marrying her straight away, he promised to do so when he returned from his next voyage just a few months later. Well, surprise, surprise, the dude was a no-show. And I'm not sure if something terrible happened to him or if he was just kind of a dick. One of the theories is that he couldn't marry her because he was already married. Okay. I don't know. A lot of stuff swirling around about this story, but that's the general consensus of what happened. No matter the reason, the months passed and he did not return. Oh. I know. A devastated young Anna threw herself from her room onto the busy street of Savannah below. Tragic. Now, Anna can be found on the second floor, primarily in room 204. Here, an unseen female presence is sensed. A literal woman is seen sitting in a chair by the fireplace. (laughs) And she seems to love to fiddle with electronics, like lights, cameras, and other gadgets. She just wants to play with them. So she's curious. Like... Like, just messes with their settings and stuff, or, like, drains the battery? Did it specify in how she messes Uh, with them? There is a story a little bit later on, but it seems like she just wants to play with them. Oh, okay. She also, though, likes to be helpful, as some women will come back to the room and find their evening and bedtime clothes laid out on the bed before them. But sometimes, she's also a pain in the butt. (laughs) She'll turn lights or the alarm clock radio on really early in the morning. Like, rise and shine, sleepyheads. (laughs) And it's not unheard of that she'll yank the covers off of couples and then throw them into the air. Uh, Though apparently in the spirit of fun only and not anything malicious. She's just having fun with, yeah, she's like, oh, 
fort time. Yes. Time to build a fort. I was going to say uh, like pillow, pillow, pillow fight, fight, but it was blankets. Doesn't blanket fight. <laughs> <laughs> she will also take jewelry and other personal items like keys that are left on the mantle and put them in bizarre places around the room. And according to hauntedhouses.com, quote, this entity has a weakness for nice undergarments, but she usually gives them back to the ones she doesn't like in some manner eventually. Don't. Oh, gives back the ones she doesn't like in some manner eventually. And the, the instance of this, Kayla, is that two women were staying in this room and they found that their undergarments were missing from their suitcase. Then they later found them draped on the branches of the inn's Christmas tree in the tavern. I got two thoughts. All right. First, sounds like two drunk women trying to uh, hide the fact that they lost their panties at a party and found them on a Christmas tree. (laughs) Second thought, are we implying that this ghost likes to wear other people's underwear? Is that what we're getting at? I honestly have no idea because I don't know if she wore them. She just... Put them on the Christmas tree instead. My comment just literally says, okay, weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Weirdo, I don't understand, but all right. Uh, But either way, for the most part, if you're nice to her, she's cool with you. Unless maybe you're a man. (laughs) As, As a lot of female ghosts do. Exactly. So apparently she did not take too kindly to one paranormal investigator who was a man who set up shop in her room. So instead of taking his keys and putting them in some weird but harmless place in the room, she put them on the top of a headstone in the very back row of the Bonaventure Cemetery. How did they even find him? That's what I said. I said, how did he find them? No idea. Unless, of course, because he's a paranormal investigator, he was checking out the cemetery anyway, and then he went... Those are my keys. Hopefully he didn't already pay for a locksmith to come fix that. Right? (laughs) Uh, And then there was this other dude named Sean who she didn't like very much. So according to a ghost tour guide and James Caskey, no explanation as to who James Caskey is, the spirit of Anna took a strong dislike to a young male waiter. Sean, whose job it was to collect the B&B meal cards off the doorknobs of all the rooms. One day, as he went around collecting the cards on the second and third floor, he felt a strange coldness and an uncomfortable feeling of being watched. The intensity grew, and by the time he reached the third floor, he felt this strange sensation of being picked up off the floor of the hallway about six inches, and then he flew down the stairways to escape. When the Travel Channel wanted to interview him in room 204, Sean found that an invisible barrier was physically stopping him from entering. I don't know what the fuck Sean did, but Sean, she doesn't like him. Yeah, fucked fucked something up. Yeah, because that's not at all like playing with blankets and (laughs) other stuff. That is very different from just a harmless fort party. 100%. It's even very more intense than stealing people's underwear and hanging them on Christmas (laughs) Yes, very true. Uh. What is cool about this location on hauntedhouses.com is that they actually include their own experiences of Anna. So written by Julie Carr, quote, incidences we experienced during our stay in room number 204. As we did some reading slash paperwork in our room before retiring, the door latch began to gently move back and forth by itself. 
In the early morning hours in a half-awake state, I realized someone was playfully trying to lightly tug down the covers. I just grabbed the covers and rolled over, not realizing it was a paranormal occurrence at the time. (laughs) She just thought it was her husband trying to get lucky. Yeah, just stop it. Sleeping. (laughs) Okay, so a little background is that on this cross-country road trip in 2006, Tom, I assume her husband, uh, would turn down the air conditioning before they went to bed, at night during their stay because places would become too cold otherwise. So on several occasions during the early morning hours, she would have an issue with being too hot and like stir a little bit because she's like, oh my God, I'm so hot. It's mm-hmm. Savannah. In room 204, Tom had turned down the air conditioning before we went to bed, as was her custom. When I became too hot and stirred a little in a semi-conscious state, something cool would gently move across my forehead, cooling me down and putting me back to sleep. Oh, caring and cute. I know. When we were packed up to move our stuff the next morning, I had a little camera bag on the bed. And when I left the room, we went down to go down to breakfast. They left the room to go down to breakfast. Before leaving, they did their usual idiot check to make sure they didn't leave anything behind. You got to do that second pass. We had already moved all of our stuff down to the car when I noticed the camera wasn't in the bag. When I got the key from the desk and Tom went back up to the room to take a look, he immediately saw it in plain sight sitting in the middle of the chair by the window. The camera wasn't in the chair when we first left the room because we would have seen it. The maid hadn't been in the room yet, so it must have been the entity of Anna returning the camera after she looked at it. Respectful people return things they borrow. And, and, Miley Cyrus Stayed in room 204 while filming the last song of Tybee Island, which I've never heard of. And she believed that she received a visit from Anna. She posted a picture of her boot with a small handprint on it and claimed that Anna had left the mark. Huh. But Anna is not the only spirit at the 1790 restaurant and inn. Apparently, there is also the entity of an African-American servant who used to cook there. And she hates women. Oh. She has been known to push, slap, or flick women who work in her kitchen, and she'll then shake her metal bracelets at them. A lot of the stuff claimed that she was a voodoo practitioner. Um, I think that's just something that they decided to say to make it seem more scary. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. She also tends to play mean tricks on the female staff. So one example that was given was a female bartender put in an order for crab cakes for dinner. She went back to work. Then, so she had written it out and she put it on the order board. Then when her break came, she went back to retrieve her dinner to find that her written order was on the counter along with a plate of crab cakes that had actually been ordered by a waiting customer. So her order had been moved from the board and put next to a plate that was already ready to be delivered, thus denying her her crab cakes. I'd be so pissed. I love crab cakes. I mean, I wouldn't care about the crab cake aspect, but like when I you're would be hungry. Upset, I would be upset about being denied crab cakes. I'd be upset about being denied dinner. Yeah, there you go. She is also known to rattle the pots and pans and freak out the kitchen staff, to knock over silverware off of tables to scare the wait staff, and she's been known to lift pots off their hooks and drop them to the ground. So more aggressive than Anna, definitely. Yes, she's also been known to throw a spice jar or two at an employee. <laughs> whip spice jars at folks here's your fucking dill (laughs) 
I was going to make some sort of kind of a big deal reference, but I couldn't I couldn't put it together in my head. But you guys, you guys just imagine a response that was funny and just pretend I said it. <laughs> but on a sad note, there once was a maintenance man in the building doing some work when he heard the sound of a woman sobbing in the kitchen. When he went to go investigate it, though, there was no one there that he could see. Oh, so it sounds like she's probably sad and angry. S- yeah, sad and angry. There is also the ghost of a merchant marine who is said to be a jolly good fellow. He enjoys music and likes helping the staff out. He has been seen decked out in his uniform, enjoying the music from the piano player or strolling through the garden room. And once when a staff member was closing down the restaurant for the night, he turned off the light for them, which is something that they could not have been able to reach without a chair. So it's too tall for the staff member closing it down. So he's like, I got you, boo. Sounds like a classy gent. Right. And then lastly, there is a boy named Thaddeus who is sometimes seen on the ground floor of the restaurant and tavern. Thaddeus leaves shiny pennies laying on the tables, bar, and on the desk, and he is described as a friendly spirit who is sometimes experienced as a warm, unexplainable presence. Oh. And that is the story of the 1790 Restaurant and Inn in Savayana. On a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, I'm going to give that one a five. Oh, shit. Because cool. A, it's Savannah. <laughs> right. I'm inclined to believe anything in Savannah is haunted. I know, honestly. right? <laughs> B, there's just too many like very specific stories. It's not vague. I mean, the, the history is vague. Like, why is it Anna? Like, who is Anna? Who is this, you know, kitchen ghost who's very upset and throwing spices? Like, yeah, That part's vague, but the stories of the actual experiences are not vague at all. Yeah, they're pretty consistent. I really liked that when that girl, when the lady was hot, she had something cool on her forehead to be like, it's okay, darling. I yep. got you. Exactly. I liked that a lot. Very cute. Not, I mean, it's not building a blanket fort cute, but it's still pretty damn cute. I know, right? What rating would you give it? I was going to give it a four. Okay. Um. Just because I'm feeling cynical. I was going to say skeptical. Skeptical. (laughs) I'm feeling skeptical today. (laughs) Yeah. I have a listener story. (gasps) Finally. Gina Gleason is back. Gina Gleason. We love Gina. We do love Gina. I can't wait to go visit Gina. I'm going to visit Gina in the spring. You're going to head to Texas. I'm going to head to Texas. I'm going to head to Georgia. Uh, mine's not going to be about anything paranormal. It's going to be only paranormal. Ex- the only thing that's going to be paranormal about me visiting Gina is how fucking magical her existence is. Aww. But Have I met Gina? Was she at your wedding? Yes. No. No, she wasn't able to come to my wedding. Because remember, we visited her on the honeymoon because she wasn't able to come to my wedding. Right. Right. I don't think I've ever I don't think you've met her. her. Gina, come back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> come back. Come back. Don't make Gina feel guilty. <laughs> she has a million people to visit when she comes to town. We don't have to hang out for long. Just when you're <laughs> here, just be like, hey, Brittany, bring me some Earthrider beer, and I'll be like, you got it, Gina, and I'll say hello, and then I'll head on out. <laughs> All right, so Gina sent this story, and it starts with, 
This story is a little different than the others I've sent in. I'm not sure if it's paranormal, alien, or something else altogether. All I can say for certain is that it definitely wasn't normal. There's something strange going on in West Texas, and I'm curious to hear your take on it. Oh, I'm intrigued. To set the scene, West Texas is far different from the big cities of Austin, Dallas, and Houston. This region is more closely aligned to the imagery of old Wild West movies. Vast desert lowlands and vivid sunsets over the Chisos Mountain Range. I do not know if I pronounced that correctly. Visually, it's a yeehaw Texas cliche, but the feeling there is otherworldly. The first puzzling encounter of our road trip took place in Marfa, a unique minimalistic artist community smack dab in the middle of cowboy country. It is also home to the notorious Marfa Lights. These mysterious orbs of light have been known to appear at random over the Mitchell Flat. The first documented sighting in 1883 was originally believed to be an Apache campfire, yet no campsite or ashes were ever located. Oh. Since then, many people have witnessed the lights twinkle, pulse, and zip across the horizon. For every skeptic seeing a scientific explanation, there has been a believer dead set on alien origin. That would probably have been me. Yep. As someone who constantly straddles the divide between skeptic and believer, I had to see them for myself. In the late hours of the night, we set out on I-90. If you've never driven through the desert at night, it's dark. Really dark. No streetlights, no buildings for miles, nothing but the stars in the sky. We reached the designated viewing platform, and after getting all of our mandatory alien abduction jokes out of our system, we strained our eyes towards the distant mountains. For a long while, we thought we were out of luck, until I noticed a small yellowish light flicker on the horizon and then slowly disappear. A moment later, it was back, moving horizontally across the mountain range. Then another followed behind it, and another after that. One of the prevailing theories about the lights is that they are simply an atmospheric reflection of car headlights. I questioned that theory at first, since the light sightings predated the invention of cars. I was going to say 1800s, right? But after watching a few of these so-called Marfa lights cruise by at a level and a consistent pace, I was ready to throw in the towel. It's a neat phenomenon to see car headlights floating above a mountain landscape, but they were clearly just that, car headlights. Mm. It was late and we were tired, shivering cold and ready to head back into town when suddenly an orange light appeared. It was higher up than the little yellow ones and distinctly larger. It hovered in a place for a minute before it began to move. Instead of following the horizontal path of the little yellows, it lifted higher up into the air. It strobed slowly on and off a few times before descending on a diagonal path. It seemed to grow increasingly brighter before splitting in two separate lights that hovered side by side. After a while, the larger of the two levitated higher into the sky and the smaller one zipped off to the left so fast I almost missed it. Then another one appeared, they moved toward one another, then another one appeared, disappeared, and reappeared in a completely different location. At times, they both seem to be moving independently, while the other times they seem to be interacting with one another. At times, they completely defied logic. The next stop on our trip was Big Bend National Park. Since we planned our trip on short notice, we were unable to claim a campsite within the park and instead arranged to spend the night on some ranch land near Terralugua. Terralingua. Terralingua. Sorry, Gina. (laughs) Still probably better than I could do. We arrived in the early afternoon and scoped out an area of the ranch that was hidden behind some big rock formations, creating a secluded space for us to set up camp. 
After our tents were up, we spent some time climbing around the big boulders surrounding our little private oasis and then set off into the park. The next morning, as we packed up our campsite, we noticed some interesting rock crystals sitting on one of the boulders nearby. I'm no expert on identification, but my best guess would be clear calcite or selenite. Since we were outside the boundaries of the national park, my cousin and I collected a few nice pieces to add to our crystal collections. Aww. Excited about our little discovery, we grabbed our gear and started on the short hike back to my car. To our surprise, every boulder we passed had similar piles of crystals. How could we have missed them yesterday? We were too giddy to contemplate the question much further as we exchanged our original selections for increasingly more beautiful crystals. It wasn't until the long drive home that it fully occurred to me. There was no way we could have missed these piles of crystals yesterday. They were so obvious along our path, and we had spent plenty of time in the full daylight exploring and climbing around these boulders. A chill ran down my spine as it occurred to me how much they looked like an offering being presented to us. Or a test. Oh, it's like that TikTok where it's like, I give you this for your bolts. Can I have for your bolts? Have you seen that? No. I've, I've had a couple of things. It's supposed to be like Faye who are like, I'll trade you this thing for your bones. And then the other person goes, um, I need my bones. And they're like, I trade you this for your bones. And then the person's like, no, that's okay. And I'm like, for your bones. I'll give you this for your bones. <laughs> nope, never heard of that. <laughs> I'll send you one. <laughs> In the weeks that followed, my cousin, who was living with me during the time, began to feel like her life was going sour. Yeah. She reported increasingly bad luck in addition to a new feeling of something being off about the room she was staying in. Late one night, she heard footsteps walking past her window at an odd cadence. The window of that room was at 90 degree angle with my front door so I checked the footage for my ring doorbell camera the next day and there had been nothing there she began to suspect a correlation to the rocks while I had taken only two pieces myself she had filled an entire jar full along with a rusty metal object and a bullet she had found near the Chinati fountain in Marfa an old repurposed military fort she insisted we had to return the rocks but there was no way I could justify driving another 16 hours round trip to Terralingua and back Instead, I suggested we bring them to Enchanted Rock Park, just a few hours outside of town. While I can't personally speak to the native beliefs surrounding the monolithic pink granite dome, I know that I've felt good energy every time I've gone hiking there. We found a beautiful spot and buried the rocks in the dirt. Despite being conflicted with our own skepticism, we even apologized to the earth for good measure. Uh, Yeah. Things seem to return to normal after that. To this day, I don't know if her strange and negative experiences were due to the rocks, the rusty items... Aliens or her own mental perceptions. But I do know that I've yet to come up with a logical explanation for those bizarre floating lights in the desert landscape or for the sudden appearance of these rock piles on the boulders of our secluded campsite. I've also learned that regardless of beliefs or skepticism, it's best to refrain from taunting aliens to come abduct you or proclaiming a desire to get haunted. You never know what's out there listening. Kayla. Yeah, she's calling me out. (laughs) I get it. Gina, I still want to get haunted. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care what you say. I do care what you say, but I don't care, but I care. <sighs> so, uh, the lights thing, super interesting. There's the Paulding lights in Michigan, which I've wanted to cover and has been on my list, but I've, it's a straight nerd ass. Like they have a scientific explanation for it. Okay. Do they have a scientific explanation or do they have a, 
scientific explanation. No, I'm pretty sure I looked it up. I'm pretty sure there's like a dead set explanation for it. But ah, the Paulding lights are straight up kind of an example of what Gina was describing with the first, the little the yellow knights, ones. not the yeah. later ones. Uh, when you when she started describing more of the the ones that moved like independently of each other, I really wanted to go. Those are no headlights, which I feel like is also a reference to something that I don't remember. I don't know what reference that would be. Um, there's the that's, that's no, no moon. It's a space station, which is a Star Wars reference. You know, I bet it's something that's based upon that. Yep, yep, oh. yep, yep, yep. And then as far as the rocks go, yeah. Dude, that was totally a test. Yeah, you failed. <laughs> but you you made it right in the end, so that's good. You failed, but you made up for the low score with extra credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's also a test. I I mean, when I was visiting Gina, we went to a fancy rock store. I would have failed that test, too. I would have picked up the rocks. Especially if it was selenite. I like selenite. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, like, if, if there was, did, did y'all feel any vibes when you were doing it, or were you just too stoked? Ah, rocks! Ah, pretty rocks. If you have a listener story you'd like to submit, you can Send do it. so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. You can also find a link tree in our bio of whatever streaming service you're listening on. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you are more comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok. Follow us on TikTok so we can do TikTok lives, y'all. Uh, so TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. All right. Well, I'm tired. So I think I'm going to drive home and go to bed. Yeah, I got to go get ready to... Not play golf, but watch other people play golf. You're ready to watch people play golf. You might just fall asleep from boredom. Uh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. <laughs> no, you'll be hanging out with Melissa. You'll be I fine. Know, it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you and appreciate you very much. Indeed we do. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> My voice is so tired. Okay, bye. <laughs> the Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me. Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!